This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. Hi. And Editor-at-Large, Liel Leibowitz. Simantov Umazaltov. I feel like I heard you sing that recently. This week on the show, our Jew of the Week is the actor Eric Layden, whom you have seen in Ozark and Boardwalk Empire or Where the Crawdads Sing, his latest movie. This was one of our favorite interviews of all time. It's like he was family already. It's like he's mishpocha and he just showed up from San Diego on Zoom. It was just awesome. Our Gentile of the Week is Ibu Patel, founder and president of Interfaith America. He's sort of the god of interfaith activism in America. And he interfaithed with us. He fellowshiped with us. And it was it was just awesome. So great GOTW, JOTW lineup this week. Good to see you guys again. I saw you, what, three days ago in person. You made it to Claire's Bat Mitzvah. I just want to say thank you. I want to thank you both for being there. It was, it was simply awesome. And Tanya Singer came up too. It was a strong, unorthodox showing. So thank you for that. We want to thank the Oppenheimer family for really keeping our dance card full. Without you, we would have no social gathering. All of our outings are all Oppenheimer related. We love it. <laughs> well, it was good. I hope the traffic wasn't too bad on a Saturday morning. Liel brought the schnapps. It was great whiskey. Rebecca, who was there, was uh, super excited to see Stephanie. It was a, a bit of a celebrity sighting for her. She hadn't seen you for a while. I felt like I was finally the person who was like, I remember when you were just like a young girl. <laughs> like, I'm like, how old am I? By the way, I want to say I have a sinus infection right now. I'm back to my, my old voice. Before my sinus surgery, um, I have a call into Dr. Prasad. So if I get a call back, I will have to stop. The famous Dr. Prasad of the Unorthodox podcast. But yeah, I mean, it was a really, really sweet event. I brought little Edith Cohen. And I'd say I did get there late because we were driving with her nap schedule. And I walked in while Sid was giving her speech to Clara. And I had this moment where I was like, I'm holding my my one-year-old and I'm watching a mother give a bat mitzvah speech for her daughter. <laughs> and I was just like, Oh, it's like that feeling when I feel emotions and I'm very surprised by it. And I'm like, oh, wow. So I felt a very different emotion. I was <laughs> listening to Sid give this incredible speech. And I was like, wait a minute. We got the wrong Oppenheimer on this yes. podcast. She really brought down the house. Sid gives one speech every couple of years and it's always the speech of the year. It's she. It's, it's her secret superpower. Now, let, let's talk about Clara for a second, though. Because yeah. she, <laughs> that kid not only read, you know, the Torah and the Haftorah, she led the entire service. It was amazing. Yes. Uh, Claire is very musical, very good with languages, and has an extraordinary work ethic. She's basically born to be <laughs> the, you know, those shuls that hire a Torah reader who just reads the whole Torah all the way through every week. She could do that. That, would, that could be a good little side hustle for her. She's been working on it for a good, I think she started two Augusts ago. So it's been 14 or 15 months and she's been totally nerding out on it. I did not realize that she was doing Psuke de Zimra and Shakri, the services that, you know, surround the Torah reading until a few days before. And I said, oh, do we have, do we know who's doing that? Because if you have like a relative or a close friend who wants to do it and it's your bat mitzvah, bar mitzvah weekend, you can reach out to that person and say, oh, I'd love it if you led the service, you know, before the Torah. What reading. do you mean who's doing it? And she, no, she did. She looked at me as if to say, well, dad, I mean, what, what kind of asshole do you think I am? I'm, I'm doing it. And I thought, well, I can't do it. I don't know how to do that stuff. When did you learn? She's absolutely amazing. And, and look, I know from Vayera, because Vayera is my own parsha. So I came with the oh. highest imaginable standards. Like, is she really going to get this, uh, you know, Zakefka? She absolutely rocked it. But I have to ask you a question. This is something yes. that Stephanie and I have been discussing ever since uh, the, the bat mitzvah. And, and we, we want to approach this with, uh, w with a sense of wonder because we noticed that all of your children have, or at least all, all of those who spoke at the bat mitzvah, 
have the most adorable and completely unrecognizable accent. It's like English country manner. It's like Jane Austen meets George Eliot. Meets Clueless. I will say it's unrecognizable, not that you can't understand what they're saying, but it's unrecognizable. You can't place where it's coming from. And I think it's because they read so many books that they talk like people in books. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. This sounds very, very sweet. I think it's a compliment, but I actually don't understand what you're saying yet because, of course, they I sound live with them. We're saying that your kids <laughs> sound English, Mark. They sound, sound like they were raised by a nanny in the British countryside. <laughs> like Riding horses is and real. hunting pheasant is what they sound like. They do not sound like girls who've like, gone to public school you know, in Connecticut. They have like a sing-song voice. Right. They like their life. Like, I don't know. I just love them. You know, hold them. on. You know, you know, I'll tell you exactly what it is. You know how sometimes you watch old-timey movies? Yeah. And you like, listen to Catherine Hepburn. It's like, people actually want spark like us in this kind of manner. They're like, R- really? That's what people sounded like in the 40s? Like, this is kind of what you girls sound like. They sound like Catherine Hepburn. I was actually watching a documentary last night of people from the 70s, which was back when people still talked. They had their TV voices. They went on Johnny Carson and Johnny Carson would say, you know, tell me about your new movie, Burt Reynolds. He'd say, well, Johnny, let me tell you. Uh, Cannonball Run, it's a strong movie. It's one of my, it's some of my finest work. And you know, there was none of the um, or the, the like hadn't become a thing yet. There were just no verbal hesitations. I know what you're talking about. Um, I haven't, I hadn't yet recognized it in my own children, but now I will awkwardly scrutinize them at the dinner table over, you know, string beans and uh, mashed potatoes and look for the traces of, of Regency England. They're my kids. What I can say is I often think, am I related to them? Because they have lots of talents I don't, which is kind of awesome. As one's children, you know, you want your children to surpass you and give you a sense of wonder. You will notice that they all look suspiciously like Sid, but not me. I mean, it's not clear. None of them. Yeah, they don't look like you at all. None of them looks anything like me. And Clara's about to be taller than I am. So it was it was great. I just have to say it was great. And I want to give a shout out. I'm going to make this a special top of the show shout out. I'm not going to save it for the Mazel Tovs. I want to give a shout out to the B'nai Mitzvah Kiddush Committee, which is all the parents who have a bar or bat mitzvah either about a year before mine or a year after, because you all come together within your sort of window of two years and cook for each other. So that meal was put together by fellow parents. The caterer would have been like $10,000. And instead, I'll actually give you the financials. We cut a check for the groceries, for everything, for $1,800. And that's for like the linens, the groceries, everything. That was a mighty meal, man. That was a great meal. But I do want to say like the amazing thing is we couldn't have afforded to actually have everyone for lunch and then we had a pizza party that night for dinner, if not for the fact that the people in the congregation, like 10 other families met the Sunday and Thursday before to cook for that thing. And so it was it was very moving for me. And it was really great to have you guys there. Let's get down to the real question. How much alcohol was at the part, the nighttime party, which by the oh, way, okay. we were not invited to, Leo. So <laughs> the people need answers. <laughs> you guys were totally invited. You could have hung out and stayed for the party. Everyone was invited. So there was a, I got the open bar. And we, what's funny is we'll get to the letters in the mailbox. People gave us advice for what to do. I'll give away the, the story right now. Spoiler alert. We got the open bar. I went a la carte because the bartender wanted to charge us, you know, per person per hour. So it was like, okay, you're having 100 people. Of course, like 40 of them were kids. But it was like 100 people times three hours times $10 per person per hour. So it was going to be like $3,000 or something. And then I said, what if it's just per drink? And they're like, well, the drinks are very expensive. If you go per drink, it's going to be like $12 for a mixed drink and $4 for a Coke. And I was like, I know my people. This is not a hard drinking people. 
just do it per drink. And like, whatever it is, it is. He's like, well, that's very risky. A few thirsty people can really tip your bar tab into the five digits. I was like, trust me. <laughs> like, I know my people. Anyway, it was amazing. Next time, I hope you guys can stay for the pizza party at night. Anna's three years from now. We, when we have it, we'll let you know. You can save the date. But meanwhile, Liel, as I recall, you had to bug out a little bit early because you were taking Hudson to the Pez Museum in Milford, which is one of the greater New Haven tourist attractions people don't know about. Pez Candy, the headquarters, is about 10 miles from me. How was the Pez Museum? Just give me, give me an update on that. The Pez Museum is a very happy place for us. This is the Leibovitz, you know, 11th or 38th or 46th visit uh, to this great American landmark. Uh, I'm a Pez obsessive to the surprise of exactly no one because it combines, you know, candy, pop culture and collecting things obsessively. It's really, really, really sweet. And you could find unbelievable treasures otherwise not available online, like the Richard Nixon Pez dispenser, which I now own. Wow. It's really, really deep cuts there. Amazing. Wow. This was like a really wholesome day, I have to say. Like Pez, <laughs> Children, Candy Factory. Torah. I took Edith for a New Haven pizza. It was amazing. So three years from now, you know, see you then. The Bat Mitzvah Soon train keeps you. rolling. Soon by you, the Bat Mitzvah train Soon keeps rolling. Soon by you rolling. again. Anna will be 5786. You're all invited to Anna's Bat Mitzvah. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J of the Jews. Uh-huh. News of the Jews. To start off this week, we're going to go to our uh, our network television critic, Stephanie Butnick, for a little News of the Jews. The most interesting thing to happen on Saturday Night Live this season was Dave Chappelle, who was the host this week, and in his monologue addressed the whole Kanye thing, anti-Semitism, Hollywood, all this stuff. He started his routine by saying, I denounce anti-Semitism in all its forms, and I stand with my friends in the Jewish community. And that, Kanye, is how you buy yourself some time. It was basically like (laughs) pulling back the curtain on what Kanye should have done and should not have done. It lacerated Kanye for what he did. My favorite line, I think, was that he said that he's learned um, that there are two words you should never say together, the and Jews, and that nothing good comes after it. And I'm like, yes, no one should ever say the Jews because he's right. Like nothing good comes after that. You're, you're, you're not being like the Jews are our really great people. Like right. no one ever says <laughs> no that. No one's so ever he, said that. He really sort of skewers what what Kanye said and the response in a way that I think people either found funny or hated and found really really disturbing. Um, it's been sort of interesting to watch. This might be a hot take, but I feel like Jews always had a sense of humor. And like if you laughed at what he was saying. It was kind of funny. And yes, there were things that I'd be like, oh, I wish he hadn't said that one specific thing, but he's a comedian. And like, I don't know, it feels very strange that everyone's so mad at him all of a sudden and being like, he's actually a a speaker of truths. He's not a comedian. I'm like, I don't know. This is the SNM opening monologue. Of course, he says that like this idea that Jews run show business, he says it's not a crazy thing to think, but it is a crazy thing to say out loud. And then he also said, you know, he broke show business rules. You know the rules of perception. If they're black, then it's a gang. If they're Italian, it's a mob. And if they're Jewish, it's a coincidence and you should never speak about it. And I had a friend who was like, (laughs) should I be offended by that? Like, it's so (laughs) searing. And you're like, I think that might be funny. Also crazy. And then, of course, you know, this reminds me not to bring this all back to the newest Jewish encyclopedia, our book. there's a whole pullout page about Jews in Hollywood. There's these two sort of like searchlights. And on one side, it says the Jews control Hollywood. An angry anti-Semite might say, 
And then the other one, it says the Jews invented Hollywood, a proud Jew might say. And there are all these industries that essentially Jews were forced into, right? Jews in banking, that is literally all they were allowed to do in the Middle Ages. Jews in Hollywood, no one wanted to do it. And so Jews were like, I can't go join this white shoe law firm. I will go to Hollywood and I will build it. And so people have pointed out the irony of now being like, oh, Jews control Hollywood. I don't know. I I, I think it's interesting. I'm, I'm curious to hear from our listeners about what they thought about this. I only partly disagree with you. I don't think it was, you know, kind of funny. I think it's absolutely hilarious. Like every second of this 15-minute monologue was just comic perfection, which honestly, as far as comedy goes, is the sole thing that matters. Was it funny? Yes. Great. That's the end of the discussion as far as I'm concerned. Now, now to the meta level. He's actually pointing at something really, really interesting. As soon as the monologue went live, like literally, I think like an hour or two after that, the Anti-Defamation League, uh, an organization that as, as people who read me in Tablet Magazine know, I care very deeply about because it used to be a great organization that actually fought for Jews. And now it's a very silly, hyper-partisan attack machine. The head of the ADL, Jonathan Greenblatt, wrote something like, I can't believe that Dave Chappelle did this. This really popularizes anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism doesn't really need a lot of help being popularized. It's quite popular already. Plus, I'm sorry, guys, but when you live in a culture and you practice politics that is dedicated almost exclusively not to the sort of big American super tribe, but rather to, you know, racial grievances and groups fighting each other over, you know, power and perception, that's what you're going to get. And the Jews are always going to end last in that race. So let's just not do it. Well, speaking of healthy civilizations and cultures, let's take this to Germany, where Kentucky Fried Chicken committed a bit of a boo-boo, or did its algorithm commit the boo-boo? We go to the Jewish telegraphic agency, KFC Germany, apologizes for treat-yourself chicken promotion tied to Kristallnacht. Kristallnacht, of course, uh, the anniversary of the so-called Night of the Broken Glass, which um, in some ways inaugurated the anti-Semitic violence that culminated in the Holocaust. Also, my birthday. Coincidence? I don't think so. I read to you from this article, the German branch of international fast food chain, Kentucky Fried Chicken, apologized to customers Wednesday for sending out a promotional message tied to the anniversary of Kristallnacht. It's Memorial Day for Kristallnacht. Treat yourself with more tender cheese on your... (laughs) I can't even get through it. (laughs) Treat yourself with... It's Memorial Day for Kristallnacht. Treat yourself with more tender cheese straight from the oven, yeah. Treat yourself with more tender cheese on your crispy chicken, KFC Germany said in an initial push notification to customers. A short time later, the chain sent a follow-up in all caps because that may, that's how you do take backsies. It's all caps. As any one of us who's ever sent an email, we immediately wish we had it send on. If the following email is all caps, then it's like you, you get a take backs. Sorry, we made a mistake. The company blamed the message on a bug in our system. I actually completely believe them. I think they have a calendar in there, in their system, that that like lists holidays or days of note and then yokes them to whatever their, their promotion of the week or the month is. And so- They have I a think- machine, yeah? It just plugged in Kristallnacht as if it were, you know, St. Franz or St. Hans's Day or whatever they celebrate in Germany. Is it with the Glühwein and the the wassailing? And, you know, I think it was just the algorithm. I'm kind of glad it's on the cow. <laughs> but on the other hand, you're like, what? Also, the phrasing of it, it's Memorial Day for Kristallnacht. What other things would you ever phrase that way? It's Memorial Day for Christmas? Like, it just doesn't make sense. And you're like, I feel like someone wrote this. Is this like a totally illiterate, uneducated, didn't take history in school, 23-year-old 
who's like, oh, Kristallnacht, the great German holiday, and like knew it was a thing, like recognized the words and thought, oh, it's a holiday the way that, for example, a lot of people don't know that Memorial Day honors the war dead. They just know it's a holiday, right? Some kid was like, happy Holocaust. Yeah. How many kids in Massachusetts know what Patriot's Day is? I mean, you know, which is a day I got off in school. So they, the up. Patriots, win, uh, like, win the- you know, It's Robert Kraft's birthday. So yeah. I think it was might've been someone who's like, oh, I see there's a crystal knocked coming up. Let's let's do it. Someone in the marketing department. Let's do a promotion. I also want to point out, you know, this is just adding insult to injury here. I mean, treat yourself with more tender cheese on your crispy chicken. Like have the trafest snack you can, cheese on your chicken. Come on. Guys, I got to tell you, you're totally missing the tremendous opportunity that we have here. The confluence of fast food chains and Holocaust education, <laughs> it's everything we wanted. Okay, get this. In in my Donick, we could have uh, my Dunkin' Donuts Ooh. chain offering all kinds of special. At uh, Treblinka, we could have a Treblink Carl's Jr. Wow. And my favorite one in Auschwitz, you know what that sign should say from now on? Corporate sponsorship? It should say Arby's Macht Frei. <laughs> <laughs> You've really outdone yourself. This is what he does late at night, ladies and gentlemen. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> this is literally the, the best insight into the inside of my head. It's like literally Holocaust puns all day long. Send your fast food Holocaust puns to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. We promise you that the people who listen to the show will think it's funny. Your risk of cancellation is nil because we've carefully selected for the community of people who will thank you. With, with your you meal, puns. you will get a beverage of Oberstummenfeuerpepper. <laughs> it's just Herr Dr. Pepper. Our Jew of the Week is actor Eric Layden. His voice will conjure in your mind a face that you will instantly recognize. If, that is, you have seen Ozark or Boardwalk Empire or Bosch or Where the Crawdads Sing, basically all the bingeable, highly watchable TV and movies of the past decade. He joined us to play Jewish geography, to talk Jewish summer camps, to talk about his life as a working actor. It was honestly one of the funnest interviews any of us has had in a while. I think, I think you'll get what I mean. Here's actor Eric Layden. Eric Layden, welcome to Unorthodox. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. You are the subject of one of our favorite genres of Jewish journalism, which is an article in the UK's Jewish News, which is basically like Jewish actor in a movie. <laughs> yeah. The subhead is literally Eric Layden is the nice Jewish boy. Uh, and then it's a reference to your role in Where the Crawdads Sing. Is that new for you? I mean, we're basically doing that to you also, but a little different. Well, it's not new because I'm a Jew. And so my mom's been doing it for, you know, 40 some <laughs> odd years. So no, it's it's not new. But, you know, I guess that comes with having a Jewish publicist and a Jewish manager who are just very proud to have a Jewish client that's successful. Most of the time, people don't believe that I'm Jewish. So my manager will, God bless her, send along a picture of me during my bar mitzvah to casting directors <laughs> to prove that I'm Jewish. I have to say, I was surprised. I did not know you were Jewish. Having seen you in Ozark, Boardwalk Empire, like I didn't know. And that's my job to know. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> if that is in fact your job to do, then yeah, that was a miss. But I feel like there's probably more to it than that. But I think not only do I not look 
Jewish, but being from Texas really throws a wrench in things for people because uh, they're like, wait a minute, a Texas Jew with blonde hair? We're not buying it. You're a spy. You're a spy. (laughs) So I do, I want to talk to you about Texas Jews and Houston Jews in particular. We've been to the JCC down there. We've done live shows there. We love the Houston Jewish community. Will you tell us a little bit about that, about that community for our listeners who are not yet familiar with the amazingness of Houston Jews? Yeah, it's a great community. Both my parents are from Houston. And so they've lived there for 73 and four years respectively and, and grew up in a, you know, pretty small Jewish community, but because of that, it was a strong Jewish community. Uh, I would say that 90% of their friends are Jewish and like probably a lot of places in the country. And this is always something I always have to explain to people that aren't Jewish. They say, you have so many aunts and uncles. And I say, no, not really. (laughs) I mean, like, Aunt Judy's not really my aunt, but she's Aunt Judy. Right. And like, Aunt Laura's my aunt, actually my aunt, my real aunt, but Aunt Judy and Aunt Nancy and Aunt Carol, they're not really my aunts. They're just my mom's best friends. And so they're they're essentially family. And they also actually are listening to this show right now. 1,000%. <laughs> the fact also that you went to Judy and Carol and was Nancy. some terrific mid-century Jewish women's naming. Uh, you're missing Barbara. Uh, that should be there and Debbie should be there. But at that point, you'd have like a, a basketball team's worth of 75-year-old Jewish women. I would, I would. Debbie, uh, and Debbie lives in LA. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, and I never, because I had already moved to LA and was older when I moved to LA, she was never really Aunt Debbie as much as she was just Debbie. Um, right. Barbara is in San Antonio. <laughs> uh, and I do have her. I'm trying to Bingo. remember just because, because they'll all listen. I don't want to leave anybody out. Um, <laughs> this is like your your award acceptance speech, but maybe more important. <laughs> no, <laughs> the stakes are higher. Doubt. Um, I, I want to throw a shout out to Aunt Simone and uh-huh. Aunt Terry. Uh, Terry, <laughs> yeah, um, Terry. You're obviously in this huge movie that is out now, where the crowdads sing. But before that, towards the bottom of your IMDb credits, you have the sort of the CSI, the NCIS, the SVU. Is that like a career rite of passage? And what are some of those roles you've played on like one episode of those amazingly popular shows? I mean, I would say that probably eight of 10 of them, I'm in a jumpsuit or at least end in handcuffs, if not dead. And yeah, it's absolutely a rite of passage. You know, I mean, it's kind of like when you went to Broadway in the like late 90s, early aughts, every character description every playbill had NYPD Blue, Law and Order, like it had all of those New York shows. I remember this because that's the last time I was going to New York shows before I had kids. There you go. And I remember, I was, like I used to go to shows and everyone, and it was like, how many Law & Orders have they done? Have they done SVU? Have they done Criminal Intent? Have they done the original with Sam Waterston? Like they've done them all. Right, right. In fact, they're, they're, they're remaking Criminal Minds right now. And they had sent a rollover uh, for a season long arc uh, to be the antagonist for the season. And then my manager called and said, oh, don't worry about it. Stop that you've done a Criminal Minds. They don't want anybody who's done Criminal Minds before in the past. I was like, good luck. Yeah, you were Joshua Beardsley <laughs> on a 2010 episode. Says exactly. Your there you go. Joshua Beardsley. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like if that's the Easter egg they're going to throw out to people, that would be kind of cool. If anybody remembers me as Josh Beardsley <laughs> in 2010, <laughs> props. I want to know about Miami Medical. Miami Medical. <laughs> you were Brad. Brad. One of the few times I get to play Brad, Chad, Thad, someone with any sort of, you know, 
maybe has like good looking in the description, charming. But yeah, I, I don't know. Like those shows, I feel like, you know, I my trajectory as an actor, you know, I don't feel like that many people have the very steady climb where it's commercials at first, commercials lent themselves to allowing me to quit my bartending job. And then I booked a ton of guest stars as you're rattling off, you know, just one-offs, one-off, one-offs. Then finally a recurring and then started booking series regulars and then, you know, so on and so forth. So I don't feel like that's always the case with people, but it's always been a pretty clean trajectory for me. By the way, when you guys were talking about all the ways he was, his, his agent to prove he was Jewish, I think I'm not the only one who was waiting for a circumcision joke, like a sort of drop trousers joke. I mean- It just feels like we're- We can't yeah. do that anymore, Mark. I got, you know, <laughs> it just feels like, not appropriate No, anymore. it's like, it's the, it's the inherited transgenerational trauma of the Holocaust movies where they tell the Jewish boy to, you know, let's see if you're really a Gentile. Let's see if you can serve in the Hitler youth. I will start to have her send my bris photos. Uh, <laughs> can we, I really, first of all, I would like to see your bar mitzvah photos. Second of all, can you tell us about where the crawdads sing and the role you play? I can definitely have uh, a publicist get you the photos and, uh, where the crawdads sing. I read the book years ago, really enjoyed it. I've said this story before, but so much so that I, I actually reached out to my representation and had them find out if the rights were available because when I read the book, I thought, wow, this would be a, a great story. And they, they obviously were not. But I knew the movie was going to get made. And so once I saw in the trades that they were making the film, I was really pumped. I mean, there's only a couple of roles I could have played. And I, I reached out to my reps and was like, I really want to do this. So I was, I was excited to get it. I loved the script. Uh, I play Eric Chastain, who is a, I guess I should first start by saying, for those who have not read the book, it is a crime thriller slash coming of age story, love story of a young woman named Kaya who lives in the swamplands of the Carolinas alone and shows great resilience, more than certainly me or probably any other Jewish boy could do. Uh, she lives alone starting at like nine. And I did um, that actually. What's that? You did that? I lived alone starting at the, I was, I was 10. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Um, Springfield, Massachusetts. Well, survived, just, I survived on friendlies and treats from the Springfield did Hall. You, the basketball so hall what kind of fribble did you get? Did you go with an awful awful or did you take that well, to no, the Springfield I mean, Mets game? I mean, if we could talk Springfield, Eric, if you want. You just hit all of the, the wow. You said, you said fribble. I did. How do you know from fribbles? Did you know that it used to be called an awful awful? Before Fribble? So somebody, <laughs> a listener wrote that into us about three years ago. I was going off about Fribbles and Fishamajigs. Mark is obsessed with And a listener wrote friendliest. in and said, it was an awful, awful. How the frick do you know that, Texan Jew boy? Uh, all right, so we'll put a pin in Crawdads. Um, <laughs> I, Sorry, Stephanie, I didn't we'll mean to, to hijack we'll get, your relevant no, question. No, this is insane because Mark has been talking about friendlies for like five years on this show and we've never found anyone, to, like this has never happened where someone actually expressed, not only expressed interest in what he was saying, <laughs> but seemed to know as maybe more than he does. So, let's do uh, it. so the Fribble used to be called the Awful Awful, which was awful big and awful good. Friendlies for a kid that spent two months at summer camp in the Berkshires at Camp Greylock was a very big treat when my counselors would bring that back. I would also spend time at the Springfield Mets game every summer and we would head in. What was what was the mall called in? You might have gone to the Holyoke Mall, the Enfield Mall, the Eastfield Mall. The Eastfield Mall. Spring the Springfield Mall, Mall as sure. well. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I spent yeah. my summers in Beckett, Massachusetts, which most yeah. people don't know about. Well, most people don't know that you spent your summers or they don't know about Beckett, Massachusetts. They don't know about Beckett, so was, Massachusetts. Right. Wait, and how common was it for Houston kids 
to go to like the, yeah. What like, are you I doing going up to Western from Mass? New York who went to Greylock? Not very, not very. Because I feel My like they would father, do the like camps in the South somewhere, the Jewish stuff. Yeah, so there were camps obviously in Texas. All my friends went to Texas camps. My father and uncle, his brother, went to Greylock. At that time, the owner, Burt Margolis and Irv Schwartz, went down and like kind of was trying to get people to go. I know you love the name. Um, (laughs) We're trying to get people to go. And so when I was nine, my parents, you know, at that time, you just threw your kid on a plane, right? You walk him to the gate and just throw him on a plane. And so they put me on a plane and I went up to Camp Greylock for eight weeks and I spent nine years doing that and absolutely loved it. Can you name your bunkmates? Like a few of them? Eric Spielman, David Sherman forever. Spielman and I are still <laughs> friends. Spielman actually, he grew up in Great Neck, Long Island with so David did Sherman. Did he? Went so to Great did Neck. I. Did you go to Great Neck North? <laughs> yes. Uh, do you love this interview so much better now? I, this interview just got really, it's like, it was fine when we were talking about your acting career. It just got really, This is yeah. really, you're just, just really everybody's just typing like, we're going to go an extra 30 here. We're never going to talk about the movie you're in, by the way. That's tell fine. Your, tell your Jewish publicist, Robert we're Quinn, sorry. B- bump Natalie Portman at 11. <laughs> yeah. We're talking Jewish geography with Eric Lee. Um, so Great Neck North, I actually went up and spent a day at Great Neck North. Uh, what year did you graduate high school? 2005. Yeah, you're far younger than we are. Um, so, so what'd yeah, you do in Great Neck that day? Did you know Amy Spiel, uh, 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 Laura Spielman? Younger than Eric. Sounds familiar. She sounds nice. She's lovely. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so Eric and I, I would go to visit him and he would come to visit me. And when I went, I would go on a Friday or uh, Thursday and then I went to school with him. I, w- I sat in all the classes at Great Neck North and uh, yeah, attended school for the day. And then we, we hung can, out. Can I just tell you? I feel like that's a very specific 80s, 90s things to do. Like I did that too. You'd visit a buddy from camp or like my first cousin, like I'd visit Jason in Marion, Pennsylvania. And, you know, I'd be there for three days and I'd go to school with him one day. Who would, they would never let you do that now. It's like, right, there'd be so much red tape now to get a rando kid who's visiting from out of town into you. Also, you'd just like be on your phone all, you'd just like stay home and be on TikTok Yeah, right, you'd stay home. But you'd like go and sit through honors geometry for with sure, Derek or Jason or Ari for or sure because thing. I was you know like Andrea Berman was cute and you know he told me she was going to be in the class I don't know you she know was cute yeah um, Andrea we're, hi Andrea she's hi, actually Andrea. on she's married she's with on the kids now. Yeah. and here we go here's Andrea um, <laughs> <laughs> no I I I so yeah I Eric Spielman was a bunkmate David Sherman Andrew Roth is somebody I still keep in touch with Adam Shopcorn. I mean, I could go on and on with names for you. If you want, want Judd Wish now, I think he owns a bunch of Dunkin' Donuts now and Taco Bells. <laughs> Do you? Wait, that was the other half of my diet growing up. It was all Friendlies or Dunkin' Donuts. And has I like has Greylock reached out to you as like famous alumni? Like, do they? <sighs> Gosh, you know what? No. I think they follow me on Instagram. I know I'm on the Wikipedia page for my school as famous alumni, but now that you mention it, I'm a little, I might be a little disappointed to know that I'm, I don't know, I'm scared to look now on the Wikipedia for Camp Craylock. I bet I'm not on there. Although- okay, where do you rank in your high school's famous alumni? Wait, hold on. Let me just tell you this. That Sorry, when yes. I When I was- I was the lead in so many plays at camp. It's my love of acting started early. And so it was usually me or Darren Ravel. You know, Darren Ravel worked at ESPN forever. Yeah, why does that sound, that's really funny. Yeah, he was the business guy at ESPN. And so anyway, I remember Burt Margolis standing up and talking about the guys that had been on that stage. And I remember sitting in there going like, one day, 
One day, Bert Margolis is going to be introducing a play. Now, Bert's long gone now, but he's going to be like, Eric Layden walked on this stage. And I, I have no way of knowing if that's actually true, if I've big, but I go to sleep at night thinking that it probably is. But I know Josh Molina walked on that stage before me, who I'm a fan of. Oh, multiple, multiple time Jew of the week on this show, that's Josh amazing. Molina. Yeah. So we should do a Greylock reunion, Ooh. a Greylock reunion show. By the way, I just Googled, intrigued by the name Adam Shopcorn. I just Googled him and he's kind of, he's a bit of a mocker. He's like a film, a documentary filmmaker in New York. Oh, there you go. I haven't spoke to Adam in years. Yeah, Shopcorn, he turned out okay. And I'm pretty certain it's the only Adam Shopcorn. There's can't be a lot of Adam Shopcorns. I remember a, you know, at camp when all boys lie about whatever it is they have. I remember his parents brought fruit for thanks uh, for parents weekend and they brought all this fruit and then they go off and they leave and Adam was like told all the guys they were like these grapes they have a Spanish fly in them so we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> save these grapes <laughs> for the dance with Ramaka Shopcorn man and I was oh like man Ramaka wow Shopcorn man I'm throwing guy. Stephanie for an absolute this is today. this is yeah wow Who's the actor you've acted with who you thought, Jesus, they're good? Yeah, I mean, there's been, yeah, there's been quite a lot. There's a lot of actors that I've worked with that that I loved working with that aren't big names. But when I watched Bradley Cooper attack American Sniper, I thought he did a really phenomenal job. And he takes this craft extremely seriously, you know, not only physically, but that's just such a demanding role and the way he was able to attack it, I, I really enjoyed watching. Do you ever worry that you're still in character when you get home? No, my, my wife takes care of that. Yeah, <laughs> I came home from Africa after like six months of being a, a Marine. And I don't know what I said or what I did, but my wife was like, you're home now. You're not a Marine. So just figure put the, it out. Put the laundry in the dryer. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, to go, ahead t- go ahead and let's start. Let's get back to reality here. Do you want to talk about the movie you're in? Should we push, <laughs> should we plug it a little bit? I mean, yeah, it's good. It's been out for a bit. It's good. The book, I loved. The movie, I like. Uh, <laughs> what's up next? You've probably shot three things that are in post-production. I know those terms. What Like, what's nice, going on? What's nice. coming out? You know what I've been working on, actually, that, I, that I'm excited about? I can't really tell you too much about it, but- developing a show. I love bourbon. I'm a big bourbon drinker, collector, enthusiast, and I'm developing a show about the bourbon boom. There is a huge bourbon boom happening right now all over the world, but certainly in America, being an American spirit that it is, and it's based on, it's a non-scripted show, but it's been really fun to be on that side. It's not the first thing I've developed, but I really enjoy doing that. And I enjoy doing that between projects because it's something completely different. So I've been focused on that recently and it's been, it's been a lot of fun. So hopefully that'll be coming out soon. As somebody who knows nothing about spirits, if I'm to try one bourbon that's within a middle-aged dad's price range, what should I go out and buy? I would say either Eagle Rare by Buffalo Trace. It's a 10 year, it's going to be 30 some odd dollars or Rare Breed. So both of those are going to be like, you can't go wrong. There's a bottle that I that I recently got that's another $35 bottle called Lost Monarch. And that's a great bottle. But there's, there is a lot of bourbon that you could have that's $30 to $35 that's absolutely delicious that you could put on your shelf for anybody that likes bourbon that comes over and they would happily have some. It's funny, Eric Layden, because you've, you've hit 
Springfield, which is Mark's sweet spot. You've got Long Island, Great Neck for me. And our third co-host, Leah Leibovitz, who is not here today, is actually obsessed with bourbon. So oh, wow. weirdly, I don't know what it is, but like, there's something we're very, like, you'll have to come back on the show. Will you come back? Introducing our fourth co-host starting next week. <laughs> <laughs> have you La considered Hoya, California. podcasting? <laughs> uh, I would happily come back. You guys have been great. Eric Layden, Big Jew, Houston Jew, Greylock Jew. La Jolla Jew. Our favorite person in Hollywood. Can we say that about you? I would gladly take that moniker for sure. Thank you for being our guest. This was a freaking treat. The movie is Where the Crawdads Sing. Uh, you could see it or not, um, <laughs> but he's great. And, and he's been paid fans. already. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> We are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. To the mailbox. Apropos of your conversation of the Hevra Kadisha, the burial society. My late father was on the Hevra Kadisha of our shul in the United Kingdom. I have many memories of dad receiving calls in the evening and rushing out of the house. My mom would say, he's got a body. When my dad died, his team had the honor of performing the tahara, the ritual washing and dressing of the body on him. In fact, at the funeral, they asked whether my brother and I would like to take part in the final elements of the preparation. We agreed and had the enormous honor of intertwining the tzitzit of his talit around his fingers. And once the lid of the coffin was put on, we inserted the dowels into the lid to fasten it. Both of those jobs were roles my dad would traditionally do with his team. It was a moment of poignancy that brought us both much comfort. Love to you all. Benjamin Sevet, Ranana, Israel. Ranana? Ranana? Ranana. Ranana, Israel. But enough about death, Mark. People really want to get to what really matters in life which is your daughter's bat mitzvah and whether or not you served alcohol. So reveal to us, earlier on in the show, you said that you placed a friendly wager uh, with the owner of the catering company saying, I know my people, they're not going to drink more than a few shekels worth of liquor. Uh, what was the total tally? The total tally was about $1,300. And in fact, if you do the math and you're thinking like 10 bucks per mixed drink, it was $8 for wine or beer, four for a soft drink. You will see that we were the least thirsty party in the history of American Benot Mitzvah. Uh, I, I made the right call. I, I went a la carte, not by the hour, by the person, fixed rate. $1,300 worth of booze is what I call a Wednesday. <laughs> so... 
So thank you to my guests for proving me right. For being those teetotaling Connecticuters. What do you call it if you're, if you're from? Nutmeggers. Connecticutians. Nutmeggers. Connecticuties. Oh, I like that. Connecticuties. So that is the answer to the question you all had on your mind. Some of you wrote in to give advice. I didn't get the mail in time to take your advice, but I, you know, there are two more simchas coming down the pike. Jerome Sandberg wrote in, in regards to Mark's question about serving alcohol, may the simcha be so joyous that by Monday, no one even remembered that there was none. Jerome, <laughs> the thing that makes you forget uh, is the alcohol, my friend. <laughs> Let me read the next one. Dear Corduroy Rav, referring to you by your proper honorific from our sister show, Take One. I understand your problem. As is evident, I enjoy a good alcoholic drink sometimes, and alcohol is common at social gatherings. But if it's hard for you, I suggest not bothering with the liquor. If anyone has a problem, maybe that can be an opportunity for them to question why they feel the need to drink at a girl's post-bat mitzvah party when they could just go home or to a bar and have an old-fashioned there. With all that said, a part of me wishes I had a liquor-serving license so I could be your bot-tender pro bono. Ooh. What a great bot tender. That is amazing. The bot, the bot tender. Don't worry, Liel. I would make you a martini the way you want it and not the way I want it. Mazel tov and your daughter becoming bat mitzvah with all the best Arden Donna. Arden is amazing. And I think that Arden brings something great up, which is this idea of mazel tov on your daughter becoming bat mitzvah, which is not always said, but that is technically correct. Absolutely right. correct. But I, I use it in the colloquial, your daughter's bat mitzvah. Which is why you need a bot tender. I mean, I need a bot explainer to tell me how to discuss it. The, the, way, right. the, way, the way you summon the bot tender is with a bot signal <laughs> over the moon. But don't listen to all those bots on Twitter that would lead you astray. Carolyn writes in and says, keep it simple. No bartender, just bottles on a table near a corkscrew and recyclable or disposable glasses. If only this place didn't have a liquor license issue, we couldn't do that. Other listeners suggested the BYOB approach. Anyway, back to the letter. Maybe a bucket of ice for those who want their white cool. Go to the local stores that college kids frequent and purchase by the case for a 10 to 15% <laughs> discount. This woman knows her stuff. One bottle, will <laughs> One bottle will serve two to three adults. Lots of perfectly drinkable wines to complement pizza hover in the 10 to $12 range. To Life and to Clara Mazeltov, an appreciative Orthodox and Take One listener, Carolyn. Well, thank you, Carolyn. As I said, the venue wouldn't let us do that. The fabulous Woodbridge Club said we had to use um, their their bartending service. And we did, and they were great, but it, that is some, some real wisdom. And finally, I want to say that lots of listeners wrote in. In fact, more of you wrote in about this than about Tahara's, um, the Hevra Kadisha burial, Clara's bat mitzvah or liquor all put together. You wrote in about the question of what kind of chairs my shul should get as we are retiring the pews and having a more flexible seating system with chairs, but you need a place to put the sador. I would say- 10 or 20 of you wrote in with pictures of the chairs that your shul uses. You're so proud of them. The, the level of pride in the seating arrangements, the furniture of your synagogue sanctuaries out there in American and Canadian and British and Australian Jewry is so high. We are the people of the furniture. And I'm sorry I can't get to all your letters, but please rest assured that I will be that I will be sending them along to the relevant committee. Well, the Pew study, the Pew study committee is who you're going to send them to. <laughs> is that what A they were talking report about? Coming out. <laughs> is that what the Jews were talking about for the past 10 years? Unaffiliated <laughs> were actually just like folding chairs that don't <laughs> secure into the ground. That's what the Pew study that's, is. That's a deep cut. Whoa. If you have thoughts on that, on Kanye, 
I mean, yay, on Dave Chappelle, on Kentucky Fried Chicken, on Arby's Macht Fry. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us at 914-570-4869. Our Gentile of the Week is a super Gentile. He's all the Gentiles embodied in one person who is an interfaith celebration just by existing. He's Ibu Patel, the founder and president of Interfaith America, a nonprofit whose mission is to inspire, equip, and connect leaders and institutions to unlock the potential of America's religious diversity. I love everything about that sentence. And he joined us to talk about why interfaith work isn't, you know, boring and what it looks like in practice. Have a listen. Ibu Patel, thank you for being our Gentile of the Week. Mark and Stephanie, thank you for having me. Okay, so I've been wanting to say this to you for a long time, and I'm someone, I admire your writing, and I've listened to you and seen you on shows, and I've, I'm aware of your work, and I, I dig your work. That said, usually when I encounter people who are singing the virtues of interfaith dialogue, I find them toxic and crazy and boring and annoying. Like, it's actually one of my triggers. It usually ends up being people bringing a minimal smidge of their own religion to some sort of IHOP or Denny's and sitting around a table, metaphorically speaking or literally, and each saying a little thing and then all nodding and affirming each other and saying, well, isn't that great? I always feel like the premise of interfaith is everyone's going to share a little bit, but as a result, we never actually see the fullness of each other's traditions. How do you counter that problem in the work that you do? So first of all, we just do it totally differently. And I'm kind of sad that interfaith work has that reputation for somebody who knows a lot about religion, which is which is you, because frankly, for a quarter century, we've been trying to change that, right? I am fully aware that that is part of the reputation of interfaith work. This is the way that Reza Aslan, who's a, a good friend of mine, started his podcast with me also. He's basically like, why do you do boring stuff like interfaith? Okay. So all the best people have, have accused you of doing boring work is what you're saying. And now, now you are okay, amongst okay, them. Okay. A couple things here. Number one, here's what I think interfaith work is. I think interfaith work is when a Muslim and a Jewish deeply committed to their religious traditions, heart surgeons, walk into a heart surgery inspired by the traditions of mercy, compassion, and healing of their own religions, which is why they became heart surgeons. They operate on an evangelical patient, every single one of them saying the prayers of their own faith before walking into that operating room in a hospital that was founded by Catholics, that is run by a secular humanist who was born Muslim, and with a nursing staff that includes Hindus and Jehovah's Witnesses, which, by the way, is happening in virtually every hospital around the country, right? So in other words, it is very concrete positive cooperation between people who orient around religion differently. And, and Mark, I, I can give you a million examples of this. One of my most recent favorite ones is Hayes, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, founded in the early 1880s to resettle Jews who were suffering Russian pogroms, spends most of its time these days, 140 years later, resettling Muslim right. refugees because it is Jewish. That's interfaith work, right? When the expression of our religious traditions is in positive relationship with people of other identity. So I, actually, I'm going to turn this on you a little bit. Given that this is actually absolutely characteristic of the American scene, 
you think about disaster relief, you think about social services, you think about a refugee resettlement, it is all very deep interfaith cooperation. Those are institutions founded by faith communities in which people are operating out of the theology of their religion in cooperation with one another. Why isn't that your standard definition of interfaith? Okay, I'll tell you why. I think the reason that I have such a thin, weak T view of interfaith work is because at the local level, on the kind of panels that we're often asked to drop in on or lend our whatever legitimacy we have to, it is often the people least committed to and least knowledgeable about their faiths who come around the table. That is to say, and I'm going to be very crude here, right? I don't actually think Orthodox Jews are better or even necessarily more learned Jews than Reformed Jews or whatever. But very often, the most learned Torah-interested Jews often don't make time for the interfaith work, or shall I say the most observant, the ones who are most likely to keep kosher or to pray fairly regularly, don't make time for the interfaith work. And the people doing the interfaith work are often the ones who say, my Judaism is interfaith work. That is to say, they're actually not interested in the Judaism. They're interested in multiculturalism, which is a beautiful thing, but they often aren't equipped to bring thick Judaism to it. Well, it's so interesting because I think a lot of us think about interfaith work as like, we're all here to do this a separate work that's separate from our faith. Like there's this idea, like like even what you're saying is we need to lean into the Jewishness to lean into the interfaith thing, right? It's not this like sort of milk toast. We're all American, like we're all similar. Let's hold hands and do something. What you're saying is like the real work happens when I say like, this is from my Muslim heritage and I'm going to bring that to this interaction, right? Like, so it's the more religious undergirding we have, the more we can dig into those meaningful interactions as opposed to just like, look at all this stuff we have in common. I want to respond to both of your questions here, right? So I actually think that if the conversation is set up correctly, which is not hard to do, there's easy ways to do this and there are challenging ways to do this, right? I'm going to give you one of my favorite stories about Interfaith Encounter. So uh, the way that Interfaith America starts is as Interfaith Youth Corps 20, 25 years ago, organizing projects with young people from different faiths. So one of these projects in the early 2000s, you know, I lead a group of college students to uh, a senior center. And one of the guys in the senior center, he asks us who we are and we'd say we're an interfaith group. And he says, what religions are you? And to one of the young Muslims, Uh, He looks at him directly and says, you got to get to know Jesus. And this young Muslim, Omar, he looks at him and he says, there is a beautiful story that Sufi Muslims tell about Jesus, that when Jesus was in the market and people were insulting him, he blessed them in return. And when he came back to his disciples, his disciples asked, how can you bless people who insult you? And Jesus says, I give only what I carry in my purse. And the old white guy at the senior center says, I see that you know Jesus. And I asked Omar afterwards, I'm like, dude, I didn't know that you were like up on Sufi stories and poetry. He's like, I didn't know either. Like it was the other guy like challenging me and asking me to get to know Jesus that kind of brought this story up that my mom told me when I was a kid. That's what interfaith work is, right? It is that conversation where somebody is asking or inquiring, or in some cases, challenging somebody else about their tradition, and they return a beautiful story. And incidentally, Stephanie, to your point, the thing that I want to highlight, which I'm struck that gets lost so often, is how much of our civil society is built by religious communities, right? So Robert Putnam is kind of the person who is most well-known for putting this front and center. But something like half of our civil society, our colleges, our hospitals, our refugee resettlement organizations, our our social services, 
And virtually all of those institutions serve people of other faiths. So that in very concrete form is the theology of a tradition. Jewish hospital in Louisville is saving Muslim, Buddhist, atheist lives. That's a theology of interfaith cooperation. And I think it is our job to name it as such. Do you see what I'm saying? So at the local level, right? Because again, this is where I often see it in action is there's some sort of round table. There's some sort of good faith effort, often after a tragedy, after an attack on a black church or a synagogue or a mosque, they say, oh, we have to get together and we have to talk to each other more. How do you do that well? What does good interfaith dialogue look like at the very local level that is more than just schmoozing, but also has the pleasure of just schmoozing? So I'm going to, I'll start with kind of a paradigm and then I'll get to a methodology, so to speak. And this is, by the way, this is what Interfaith America does, right? Like we name things that exist and we we tell a story about it. We tell the story about Jewish Hospital or HIAS or uh, the Inner City Muslim Action Network as an institution that is characteristic of American religious pluralism. We're also kind of naming this paradigm that my metaphor for it is the potluck supper, right? So America's not a melting pot. It's a potluck. It requires people to contribute the distinctiveness of their diverse identities to the kind of whole. It nurtures creative combinations, positive relationships, and it facilitates cooperation for the common good. So the bumper sticker way of saying this is diversity work, particularly religious diversity work, should be about respect, relationship, cooperation respect, relationship, cooperation. That actually really matters on the local level. So Habitat for Humanity doesn't exist without people from diverse religious communities building houses together. Like that is their main source of volunteers. A food depository. Go to your local food bank, like the big one, and ask the CEO what percentage of her volunteers and distribution sites are faith-based. That's interfaith work. And those of us who talk for a living, it is our job to nurture thick, meaningful conversations between people who are already in positive cooperation about that cooperation. So I once got a call from Wendy Kopp. Founder of Teach for America, Wendy Kopp. Yes, exactly. One of my heroes, right? Still, still. And um, she says uh, in this phone call, uh, it's early in the formation of Interfaith Youth Corps. I'm, you know, blown away that I get this phone call. She says, hey, listen, we started Teach for America with significant attention to diversity, right? Race, gender, class, geography. We want a diverse teaching core. We're clearly teaching in places of American diversity. But when we have conversations with the people becoming part of the teaching core, and ask them why they, you know, didn't go to Goldman Sachs, but came to Teach for America. This was a big deal in, you know, back in the early, late 90s and the early 2000s. It's less kind of culturally salient now, but it was a big deal back when I was in in grad school. She says, what the members of our teaching corps tell us is that their faith calls them to do this. They're kind of embarrassed to say that like out loud in public, but in one-on-one conversations, that's what they say. And part of what you're doing, Ibu, is you're building uh, interfaith conversation around service. And I'm, I want to be able to tap into that energy source. The point that I'm making, I think if you ask a set of people in service professions from preschool teachers to heart surgeons, tell me the faith inspiration for why you do this. In nine out of 10 instances, you will get a story, even from people who are atheists, because their mom 
their grandma, their uncle, likely sat at the table and told stories about how Rabbi Hillel said, if you are only for yourself, what are you? Or tikkun olam, right? Repairing the world. Like they will remember those stories. They will have gotten into their kind of DNA. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's almost criminal to not be able to have a positive public conversation about religious diversity in a nation that I will emphasize whose European founders were coming out of the European wars of religion. And what they architect is a brand new model in human history for a mass level democracy of how people from different faiths are going to get along with each other. So what do we do in those trickier interfaith moments? We have a lot of listeners who are Jews who live in the South, right? Where this idea of like someone saying you should know Jesus is, you know, like that that is actually thrown to them in a not pleasant invitation for interfaith dialogue. So what do we say to people who find those kinds of invitations not to be constructive or productive, but to sort of be put on them in an uncomfortable way? So I want to totally acknowledge that those are challenging situations. Listen, I'm an Ismaili Muslim, right? So not only like am I a brown Muslim in much of white America, right? But I'm a heretic to a lot of Muslims. Do you want to say 10 seconds on what an Ismaili Muslim is for people who don't know? So Ismailis are the Catholics of Islam, right? And what I mean by that is like Catholics, what distinguishes us is we have a living and present religious leader known as the Aga Khan, uh, which is a title. We call him Hazar Imam, living and present Imam, and he guides the community. He interprets the Quran and the tradition for us, and he guides the community. So I'm married to a Sunni Muslim. I'm, you know, I am a proud Ismaili, but I'm certainly familiar with multiple kind of textures and traditions within Islam, right? But the point that I'm making is I know what it means to be, what it means to be a put upon minority. Just a couple of, of quick stories. So, you know, I spent a lot of time on college campuses going to this small school in a small town in Minnesota. And I'm told that the Christian group on this Christian school, who doesn't think the school is Christian enough, mm. uh, has protested my the invitation to me by saying, you invite, you've invited the devil to campus before a Christian. And then the, the question is, do you want to meet with them? And I'm like, of course I want to meet with them, (laughs) right? And it has been my experience in 25 years of doing this work that somebody can call you the devil over a screen. And when you walk into a room and smile and say, did you think the devil was going to wear Levi's? The reaction is different. And so that's the work that I choose to do, right? Not everybody has to walk into that room. I get that. I am not telling other people that they have to proactively walk into uncomfortable situations, but somebody has to if, we, if we're going to have a pluralistic democracy, right? And we're going to actually have a reasonable number of people who are willing to walk into a situation where people have negative stereotypes and to say, hey, listen, I want to have a positive conversation. No, total. I mean, there is that trope that gets trotted out a lot of like, it's not my job to explain to you. And actually, it has to be somebody's job. (laughs) And we'd rather they ask people from the community than go to Wikipedia. It's Stephanie and Liel and I, we've taken on ourselves to do that job. You've taken on yourself to do that job and to teach the rest of us how to do it. Can I say one thing on this? Look, I appreciate that. Like, I love that. Like, there's been no like, tell us about your life kind of thing. Like, we just jumped right into it, right? It's a very, by the way, the one thing I'll stereotype Jewish-wise, it's very characteristically Jewish, right? Like, it's, (laughs) and I love that. (laughs) Right, exactly. That and we save money well and run (laughs) the media. (laughs) We run the media, we're good with money, and we cut the ball. 
Oppenheimer, if you get me into trouble, which is, if I, which is very likely. Well, that's some interfaith likely. shit. That's uh, <laughs> Jews get it. <laughs> We're all working together to make trouble. How to make Ibu Patel uncomfortable. Just try out stereotypes tapes near him and put him in a that's position. Exactly, actually, that's, that is kind of true. I actually really, it actually makes me very yeah, sorry your, about that. Your so, body language, <laughs> like you're, I, I'm sorry about this. Yeah, I, I you know it's. So, okay, back 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 to the thing. So you said the people who say it is not my job to explain things to you, actually, it's somebody's job. You pointed out, which I agree with. Here's my loving question to those people: Do you never ask anyone else for an explanation? Are you a world expert on all of the human cultures such that you? will never inquire about what somebody else's feast foods or how to pronounce their name or what their native language is. It's kind of nuts to assume this ridiculous position of self-righteousness and say, it is not my job to explain things to you. And the mirror of that is, I'm never going to ask you about anything. So like, that's the end of education and actually the end of pluralism right there. Because if we do not mutually inquire about each other, how do you learn anything? Well, that's a perfect segue to the best part about being the Gentile of the week is that you get to ask us a question about Judaism. Anything you've ever wanted to know. I mean, you probably probably know more about Judaism than we do, maybe. But like, is there is there something you've always sort of wanted to ask? Like, this is the safe space for that. All right. How do you feel about the way Jews are constructed in the paradigm of anti-racism? <laughs> Dang. Usually they ask us about food. Yeah. <laughs> Why are no, there so many holidays? I've eaten matzo ball soup and gavelta can you, fish. Can you say a little bit more about that? I will answer your question. No, I actually know. The no, answer that's is a little no. Bit I, I, I want to know what constructing you, the, I want to know what that pops for you. That was a little too multisyllabic for me. Like, I, I, I just can you rephrase? Okay. So diversity work is everywhere now from kindergarten to fortune 100 companies. I think in a diverse democracy, you have to be proactive about engaging people's differences, right? So I think doing diversity work is a really, really good thing Uh, because, you know, I think and talk for a living. I'm always curious about the paradigms by which we go about things. The dominant paradigm of the day is anti-racism and Jews play a very unique role in America and Western civilization. Are you white? Are you Semitic? Are you insiders? Are you mainstream? Are you outsiders? Yeah. It's an amazing question. I'll jump in here, and this is a thing I never do, and we actually haven't really talked about this, and I'm, I'm really glad. It's, it's kind of, I'm not surprised that you are the person to bring this up, right, going like this idea that it's not a surface-level conversation. Look, this is a longer conversation for sure, but I think a lot of Jewish people feel very uncomfortable right now because a lot of them see themselves as, you know, like, good progressive liberals who are on the side of racial justice and racial equality and for the past few years have been awakened to all sorts of things the way many Americans have. But they're put in a really interesting spot because these constructs see them as white, right? And of course, there are Jews of color who are put in an even more sort of peculiar point in these conversations. So for a lot of Jews to be framed as white when they don't necessarily see themselves as the dominant 
majority culture um, and haven't in their family history. But there's a way in which Jews feel uncomfortable that they are now sort of labeled as white, even though we are, for the most part, white passing in a lot of ways. So I think a lot of Jews have had to contend with this idea of acknowledging their privilege, but also feeling like they maybe are being put in a box by these new narratives, by these new structures that they don't necessarily agree with. Um, And I think Israel puts this all into another completely dicey place, right, with this idea of like colonial oppressors and Jews don't see themselves in that way, um, in that place either. So I think that you, it's a really good question. I think a lot of Jews are struggling how to feel in this moment. The limited amount of diversity work and anti-racism work that I've been exposed to in terms of trainings or seminars in workplaces and schools, whatever, is almost universally badly done because it forces constructs on people that either don't feel right to them. And I think that's true for most Jews when they're even included. And they are often excluded from these conversations because they're presumed to be people of privilege, people of power. But even people who are included, I think, are often then put in the boxes that may not be most important to them. So one of the things I talk about as a teacher of writing is I say, you know, what we're trying to get to is your radical eccentricity as an individual, right? Your writing voice is going to be some mashup of the things that formed you, one of which may be or may not be, but but maybe your skin color, ethnic identity, heritage, religion, but might also be that you were a gamer or that you're queer, or that you grew up in a place where you were the only person who had certain interests and nobody around understood you, or that you're neurodiverse, or that you're a Westerner who all of a sudden is transplanted to the East and nobody understands, you know, the folkways of where you grew up. It could be a million things, and race might only be one of them, um, and it might not even be the most significant one. And religion, for many people, isn't one of them at all. At least they don't think it is. You're correct to point out, Ibu, that actually if you scratch the surface, it often is. So I just think that, like, trainers and consultants who come in and tell us which boxes we're going to check and how often just do a lot of damage to the radical eccentricity of the human soul and the creative spirit. And so I'm, I take a pretty dim view of the whole conversation as it works its way out in America right now, because I think that it asks us to check boxes rather than to write paragraphs about ourselves. So I think about this a lot <clears throat> for all kinds of reasons. One is I really think that diversity work is building a muscle. And so Doing it right really matters or doing it well really matters. And by the way, note, I ask the question as an inquiry, not as a, not as an implicit judgment, right? I ask it as an inquiry. I mean, I have views on it, but mostly I want to be kind of an intellectual about this, which is I think soliciting a range of views, looking at a range of evidence and kind of putting the pieces together. But I'm, I'm curious, I, I, I want to tell a story about, about a word that Stephanie used and then Mark repeated, and that word is privilege. So let me tell you a story. So I am facilitating a diversity discussion, the kind of thing that Mark hates with a group of college students on a selective college uh, in the American Midwest, uh, a liberal arts college. It's on Zoom. And it begins in this very familiar way. This young woman speaks about her privilege as a Christian, as a white person, as somebody who grows up middle class, as an American, And I can feel the discomfort in her voice, right? And she's like, these privileges give me a form of power. And she's like, I, you know, like, I don't really know what to do with that. And she's like, I really want to hear about a different experience. Okay. But the person who speaks next unmutes herself on Zoom and she is so eager. And she says, I am privileged also. I am from Egypt international student, right? Not an Egyptian American. I'm from Egypt and it's a great civilization. I am Muslim and we have the final prophet. 
I am studying in America and that will make me powerful. And I almost interrupted and said something like, you're doing it wrong. You see what I'm saying? Because the script is so familiar. White Christian middle-class individual confesses her privilege as something she doesn't want and then invites somebody who is meant to say her identities don't give her privilege. But how crazy is that? You know, I was thinking about this the other day. I don't remember why, but I remember thinking I, I must have. Because been, you were reading my book, I was book, reading Mark. your book. I was excited about interviewing you today. And I was driving along and I was thinking about, I don't know. I usually, when I'm driving along, I'm thinking about old episodes of Beverly Hills 90210. But this time I happened to be driving along thinking about how I want my children to see themselves. And maybe because I have two daughters who are at Jewish summer camp right now. And I had this thought. And I'm just going to put it into words, even though I'm sure there's a more diplomatic way to say it, that I hope they see themselves as aristocrats for being Jews. Like, I hope they see themselves as heirs to this extraordinary thing that can never be taken away from them, even if somebody comes and shoots them or demeans them or says a slur. Like, that's what they have, is that they're heir to three millennia of ethical monotheism. Like, that's what an extraordinary. And I just think I, I remember thinking like. Does anyone ever talk to them that way? Have I even have I even talked to them that way about what it is that they have? And the Muslim college student you were talking about, like, what an extraordinary thing to say about herself. Like, I have the prophet, <laughs> you know? Right. Look, I, the, the, the final chapter of my book is a letter to my two sons. And I say, embrace your privilege, right? First of all, there's a theological privilege. But there's also just materially speaking, you are one of the luckiest people in human history, right? And by the way, Every single person who is listening to this podcast is one of the luckiest people in human history, right? So almost by definition of living in the early 21st century in the Western hemisphere, minus certain important groups of people. So for example, prisoners, right? You're one of the luckiest people in human history. As Obama says to uh, the Howard University graduating class of 2016, this is you know when the kind of anti-racism, critical race discourse was becoming more salient, which by the way, I want to say, I think is an important contribution. It is an important lens, right? That, that discourse is an important lens. But Ob- Obama goes through like how it's hard to be black. Then he goes through black progress and he says, it's America 2016. Would you rather have been born at another time? Would you rather have been born in America in 1916 or 1816? Why not see the wind at your back? Why not see what you might do next, right? And I love the idea that you're you're an aristocrat, which by the way, means you have responsibilities, right? So I, I say to my kids all the time, what are you complaining about? You have the breath of God in you. Forget that we like live in a house and have. What do you mean you won't do the dishes? You have the breath of right. God in you. <laughs> you won't sort the laundry. I'd say, if I can call you that, you like that, that. that's the conversation in my house, Mark. Like I'm like, you know, what do you, you mean? You want an iPhone? You're not going to mold the, the breath phone. of God wasn't right. enough. You need a phone. <laughs> Ibu, this is amazing, and I think this is definitely the beginning of a number of conversations that I hope we can continue to have with you. I want to say it has been a privilege to talk with you. The organization is Interfaith America. The book is We Need to Build Field Notes for a Diverse Democracy. The new podcast, Interfaith America, coming soon this fall. Thank you so much for being a guest on Unorthodox. Thank you. Mazel tovs. Leo, do you have a mazel tov? Mark, this week, we all 
have one giant collective Mazel Tov. No one else is allowed a Mazel Tov this week except for the one and only Clara Oppenheimer who really rocked it and is now a bat mitzvah. Mazel Tov. Liel, that is so kind of you and Stephanie. Can I, can I cheat and throw in one little postscript Mazel Tov? Even though you said she gets the only Mazel Tov. In all humility, can I throw in another one? Because it's kind of related to her. You're allowed. I was driving... In Woodbridge, actually on my way to the Woodbridge Club where the party was held. I think I was dropping off tablecloths. And a police officer pulled me over. And he said, you rolled through that stop sign and you shouldn't do that. And then he said, and especially with that beautiful little boy in the back. And David was in a car seat in the back. He said, a lot of people don't obey stop signs anymore. Everyone's been rolling through them. And I had this moment where I thought, he's absolutely right on all of this. And I said, you know what, officer? Not only do I roll through stop signs sometimes, but I find that I accelerate to get through yellow lights, whereas I used to slow down for yellow lights and stop. And not only that, officer, I'm really high on PCP (laughs) right now. (laughs) I said, you know what, officer? I also have not been using my turn signal as much as I ought to. And I said, all of this makes children less safe. And I want to thank you for enforcing these traffic laws because that's actually what keeps society going and keeps children alive. And he said, and you're like, are you a psychopath, sir? <laughs> Step out of the car. And then he said, well, no ticket today, sir. Just a warning. But, you know, keep that son in the backseat safe. And I said, thank you, officer. And then I rolled on. And I just want to say, like, I know that I know that in my own life, not all police stops have gone this I'm way. I'm sorry. And, and, then, and then in your DeLorean, you traveled back in time <laughs> to the year 2022, back from the 50s where this encounter took place. Exactly. It was, a, it was an encounter. I, not all police encounters, even in my own life, go that well. But this one did. And I just want to say thank you to everyone out there in any profession who keeps us safe. Because you know what? I have five healthy, safe children. And that's a special thing. So a mazel tov to all of those who help keep it that way. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. The team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Sarah Fredbinator, Jerome Ruskay, and Sam Hacker. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If Twitter still exists, get our brand new swag at tabletstudios.com. That's right, there's new swag. If you have any of our t-shirts, onesies, beanies, toques, anoraks, beer mugs, stadium pals, those are out of date. We have new, better ones at tabletstudios.com. The episode art is by Esther Werdiger. The theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. The mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by rabbis Annie Lewis and Yosef Goldman at Sherry Torah in Gaithersburg, Maryland. And a mazel tov to Philip Raskin for having the wisdom to nominate you as our rabbinic supervisors. We come to you from the increasingly crisp, dare I say cold, autumn air of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.